You're so gracious. Good morning, everyone. Bonjour tout le monde. Hello, everyone. Are we awake out there underneath those masks? Hey, we get to hide a little bit more before sleeping. I was telling Pastor Bruce, I think it was yesterday, that in Haiti, um, we would have um, typically, in this situation, we would probably have two, four, six, um, eight, ten, maybe 12 different ushers. And they would be at either end of um, the aisles and, and the front and the back. And uh, if you fall asleep or you start to look like you're going to fall asleep, they come and they will push through everybody in the seats before you and they will wake you up and make you sit up. <laughs> so uh, it would be interesting to see what's happening now in Haiti if they're wearing masks. I'm being told they're not doing so well with that. But if they were, um, they might be able to sleep a little bit more uh, peacefully. Uh, than uh, those of us who are here today. So, bonjour tout le monde. I'm so happy to be here with you in person. This is my first public appearance in preaching since January. And uh, so I'm still getting kind of used to this mask and don't shake hands or hug. Or, and so it's a little bit off for me. I've also recently had oral surgery and I can't feel part of my face. So that makes it a little bit challenging pronouncing some of my words. Uh, sometimes uh, Creole comes into my head, and I struggle to remember what the English word is. So if I just seem a little out of it this morning, it's not because I had too much hand sanitizer uh, on my hands and happened to sniff it a little bit. It is uh, God's grace, God's grace being manifested uh, to to me, and uh, gratefully through you as well. Well, first of all, again, my name is Tanya, and I'm so grateful that Pastor has learned how to pronounce both my first and my last name correctly. That's a rare deal. And so the anointing be upon you, be blessed, um, because many people tend to call me a number of different names, including my husband, but we won't go there right now. But my name is Tanya, and uh, I'm a missionary. And perhaps some of you have heard it said that, that missionaries are like the church's special forces. Uh, we go into the enemy territory sometimes covertly, and, and we start tearing down walls for Jesus um, we, we have this special training, you know, and, and it's preparing us to go into the darkest places of the globe. Uh, missionaries are on the front lines of the kingdom of God, right? I mean, who hasn't heard of, um, let's say, um, uh, Elizabeth Elliot or Jim Elliot, for that matter, or, or Nate Saint or, or Hudson Taylor or Amy Carmichael or Brother Andrew or, or David Livingstone, right? They're, they're pretty well known. Or maybe some of you have thought of missionaries as being like the, the special spiritual superheroes. My favorite superhero as a child growing up was Bionic Woman. Now I'm really dating myself. And um, the Bionic Woman was a TV series, I think in about mid-70s, uh, late 70s. And it featured Jamie Summers. And she had these special uh, powers. She would go on these special high-risk government missions using her bionic powers. She had been given these superhuman powers following this, this terrible skydiving accident, which basically left her a, a mangled mess. 
and uh, she ends up with these these two bionic bionic legs, and and she can run at speeds about you know 60 miles per hour or 90 kilometers per hour, and and she has this bionic arm, and it allows her to just kind of bend steel and and throw objects at these these great distances, and then she has this this inner mechanism in her right ear that is replaced with this bionic uh, device that that gives her this amplified hearing that she can detect sounds that, uh, that regardless of how far they are, she has this capacity regardless of, of volume or frequency, she's able to hear that. And so yes, um, I am a missionary, but I am so sorry to tell you that if you came to see a superhero today, um, you are not looking at one. I am not a super elite, super spiritual uh, mission uh, personnel or on a mission squad. Squad. I have no superpower. I'm. I'm not bionic woman with superhuman uh, capabilities. Uh, I'm not the cream of the crop. I'm not the best of the best. In fact, I'm. I'm pretty ordinary. But what what is extraordinary is that God is willing to use someone even like me, frail and fragile, foolish at times, to serve him as a missionary. Now, this is a real shocker. <laughs> this is a real shocker that our Lord would even want to send me anywhere because if the truth be known, I didn't even want to go to Haiti. I didn't even want to go. I'm like the prophet Jonah I wanted to, to run in the opposite direction of God's call. If you had asked me over eight years ago to list for you the, the top five places that I did not want to go as, uh, in, as a missionary, Haiti would have been on that list. Haiti would have definitely been on that list. See, I had heard that others call Haiti hell on earth, and I was not too happy about having to go there. And it didn't help that some high-level Christian leaders told me that Haiti was a graveyard for missionaries. That wasn't very encouraging um, for me to, to hear and say yes to God's call to, to go to Haiti to serve him because I was pretty sure I had heard that the average length of a missionary in Haiti is about 6 to 12 months. And all that weird spiritual stuff. See, I, I, anything I heard about Haiti spooked me out. It freaked me out. I mean, I had heard it said that Haiti is 70% Catholic, 30% Protestant, 100% Voodooism. Let your head wrap around that one. Hadn't it been said that Haiti is 70% Catholic, 30% Protestant, and 100% Voodooism. I didn't want to go there, and I didn't want to put myself and my family anywhere near demons or those who might even unknowingly worship them, thinking them to be no more than dead ancestors. And I was even less comfortable when I heard about this three-day countrywide national event called the Day of the Dead. I didn't feel so good about that. I wasn't so comfortable. 
about moving to a country where I heard they had this, this three-day national celebration of the Day of Dead, or this other voodoo celebration called the Fet Gye Day. And I, I, didn't, I didn't feel too comfortable. I wasn't too happy about this idea of this, this festival that focused on worshiping demon spirits by giving them gifts such as homemade um, beeswax candles, um, flowers, uh, food, alcohol. And I'm not even going to, I am not even going to tell you what the worshipers do with chili peppers. Your worst imagination couldn't come up with it. That didn't, uh, uh, that, that, didn't, that didn't sound so good to me. And what about this Lugawu, anyway? This, this, this creature-like bird that comes and, and, and kills babies in their sleep. Zombies? Isn't that something out of a, a Hollywood horror film? I mean, what person would want to go to such a place? I haven't been able to speak with my IT guy. Forgive me. But are we going to able to go to the next picture, please? Because I think, yes, here we go. This is the voodooism in the Day of the Dead. They typically, I won't go into all of it because there's so much to cover this morning, but you'll see this guy on the right-hand side with the white face, and that's the, you'll see that during their, their um, festivals. They'll have sometimes one part of their face painted black and the other part face of their face um, painted white, and that's to represent the dead. And their graveyards are not like our graveyards or graveyards because Haiti is a big rock. It's very difficult to dig. And so they have tombs, and you rent your tombs. And if you don't pay your rent, guess what? You're evicted. So we have these tombs, um, and they'll go to the graveyard where all these tombs, and that's where family members' um, remains are placed, and they have their their festivals. So yeah, I didn't, I didn't know the first thing about Buddhism, and what I did know, I didn't really like too much, and I didn't have a clue about earthquakes either. See, snowstorms, I'm a pure-blooded Canadian, eh? I'm a pure-blooded Nova Scotian girl. I can do these, 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 uh, these snowstorms, but uh, earthquakes, uh, not so much so. Uh, not so much so. I, I did happen to, to imagine, though, it had to have been horrible to have upwards of 220,000 to 316,000 people buried within 35 seconds. I'm tempted I won't because there's so much I do hope to cover this morning to have us sit here for 35 seconds to get a feel for that and go 35 seconds, upwards of 316,000 people buried alive in the 2010 earthquake. The earthquake left another 1.5 million Haitians homeless and an additional 1.5 million Haitians negatively impacted. The number of orphans left by this terrible natural disaster, the numbers just staggered my mind. 124,000 children lost at least one parent in the earthquake and another 7,000 have said to lost both parents in the earthquake. You know, that doesn't sound like a place I want to go to and take my children there. I mean, what if this, what if this was to happen again? That's just crazy, even after all these years, to look at some of the pictures of what took place on that day. And what if it was to happen again? I don't want to be there. And all those nasty diseases, some of which I, I don't even really, and didn't know really how to 
pronounce typhoid, dengue, chikungunya, that's not a KFC special. So don't go looking for it on the menu list. It's a mosquito-borne virus. And our daughter did end up getting it. So yeah, these diseases are there. Chikungunya, malaria, cholera. See, for me, HIV AIDS was something I would read about in the magazines or, or perhaps see on a newscast. It never was something I felt like I really had to be personally concerned with, but not so in Haiti. Haiti has the highest rate of HIV AIDS in the Caribbean. And it's stated that each year, at least 5,000 Haitian babies are born infected with this virus. Uh, no God. Um, Sorry, uh, not interested, uh, please send somebody else. It's far too dangerous in Haiti. Haiti has been ranked among the 10 most corrupt countries in the world. Port-au-Prince, which is the capital of country, has been said to be the fourth most dangerous city in the world. According to human rights group violence in Haiti, in just one year, claims about a 1,000 people, including foreigners, missionaries, and UN peacekeepers. And I happen to know some of them who were killed. I don't want to go. I don't want to go, God. All that poverty is too overwhelming. I had this horrible picture in my mind of the extreme poverty running rampant in Haiti. I happen to know that Haiti is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, where approximately 70% live in poverty, with multitudes of them trying to survive on an annual income between $200 to $400 U.S. Three out of four Haitians try to live and survive on less than $2 U.S. a day. The average amount that a farming family in the more rural areas of the country makes about $140 U.S. per year. They see this, the lack of accessibility to quality education and health care also fueled my reasoning that God needed to send somebody else to Haiti. <laughs> send somebody else to Haiti. See, I had a nice house in Canada, in the Annapolis Valley of, of Nova Scotia. I had a seven-bedroom, 3,500-square-foot house, acres of land. People said, when we were trying to sell it, they said, you know, you really should put this in a magazine. But Haiti? Uh, in Canada, in Nova Scotia at least, I could leave my doors open. It was actually almost considered offensive to lock your doors. You, know, you just left your doors open. If you had something you wanted to sell, maybe you had some fruit or some plants, whatever, you just put a table at the end of your driveway in a little jar and people put the money in it. Oh, so not in Haiti. No, no, not in Haiti. See, Haiti has all these gates. Everything is behind gates. Everything. Security gates, they'll have broken bottles all along the, um, the and wiring all along the top of the gates. Um, residential homes, um, the, the grocery stores, even churches have armed guards. Uh, one of the main grocery stores that I would go to called the Caribbean, um, they had, I don't even know, it would be potentially as high as you're sealing the gates that they're there. And I think I've counted as many 12 to 14 armed guards before you even get to the door of the grocery store. That's just getting into it. Yeah, so, yeah, no, um, God, you cannot truly be serious about this. I mean, 
Really? Really? And so there it is. This is confession number one of a, a faulty missionary. So Joan and I do have a lot in common. As rebel missionaries, we both have learned some huge lessons. God does indeed sometimes call his servants to go where they do not want to go. And he may even send them to a place that they may consider to be hell on earth or to a people whom they would think are crazy. But thank God that he does. Thank God that he does. Had not the Lord called me to where I did not want to go, I would have missed out on the best eight years of my life. I did not say easy years. Haiti is not an easy place to live. And it can be a form of hell on earth, particularly for millions of struggling Haitians. And serving in Haiti has not been without its challenges to say the least. But God has made it for myself and my husband, Darren, just a small piece of heaven on earth. And the lessons that I've learned have been eternally transforming. Confessions and lessons of a faulty missionary number two. You know, that wasn't always how I have felt. And I confessed after just starting our missionary assignment in Haiti, I was still looking at Haiti through a particular lens, a wrong lens. I had poor eyesight, to to say the least. I only saw Haiti as being poor. That's all that I saw. That's all that I could see. When I look at Haiti, that's all that I saw was the poverty. And when I first arrived in Haiti, I was putting my attention on Satan's activities and his strategies of destruction for the millions of Haitians who live there. Satan is alive and well, unfortunately, in Haiti. And he does have strategies of suffering for the Haitian people. And when the Lord came to me within the first, I would say, uh, within the first two months, and he convicted me of my foolishness and putting my focus on what the enemy was doing. And because my focus was on what the enemy was doing, I was not able to see what the Lord was doing. And I was missing out on the best of what God was doing in some of the most hardest places I've ever known or been to. I saw Haiti in a whole other way as he showed me his beauty shining in and through and above the suffering. I saw people of Haiti in a way that I wasn't seeing them. I have learned that Haitians are some of the richest people on the face of the planet. And I don't say that lightly. They are rich in creativity. They literally, I don't have any on me. I did bring it with me, but I didn't wear it. They literally take garbage dirt, and empty 50-gallon oil drums and make the most beautiful jewelry and artwork and even furniture out of those items. So very creative. They are rich in faith. They are rich in love of and for the Lord. And the truth is their riches and their richness showed me my own poverty. I used to think that 
being poor meant maybe I didn't have a lot of nice things. Maybe I didn't have a, a, a car or even a house. and Perhaps I didn't have a lot of food to eat. And maybe I wasn't um, able to have enough money to, to go to school even. Or, or um, but, you know, here's the thing. The Lord gave me the lesson through my Haitian friends that taught me poverty, real poverty, the worst kind of poverty is not material poverty. It's the poverty of the soul. It's the poverty of the soul. It's a form of spiritual poverty. Like most of you, maybe not all of you, but like most of you, I have been born in Canada, one of the richest nations of the world. I wouldn't want to have been born anywhere else but here. I'm proud to be Canadian. But even in our immense wealth and the richest resources, I believe that our country is spiritually poor. And as a Canadian and even as a Christian, I've been known to put too much trust in the size of my bank account. And I've considered myself rich because I have a car that sometimes wants to work. Or I have a closet full of clothes or I have more than enough to eat. But the level of my faith, the depth of my joy, and the quality of my love for the Lord and for others, not so much so. Pretty poor, actually. The lessons of a faulty missionary. Number three, my attitude and and thinking was pretty poor as well. See, I, I thought... I had all the answers for Haiti. I had been involved in ministry for a long, a long time. I had been actively involved in um, Atlantic Canada, all across Canada, throughout the United States and Africa and Southeast Asia and, and the Caribbean and uh, South America. I mean, I've, I've served in a number of capacities, um, a number of locations with missions. And so I thought I had the answers for Haiti. I don't think it was a conscious thing, but I think at a subconscious level, I I, I thought that I was the savior and I was going to save the poor Haitian people. I mean, I didn't didn't know that's what I was thinking, but I thought, you know, at least, at the very least, I can go and, and help. And the lesson that I've learned in that is twofold. One, I need Haiti more than Haiti needs me. Two, Haiti does not need another savior. (laughs) They do not need another blanc sauvé, a white savior. I didn't bring God to Haiti. God was and is continually moving in mighty and miraculous ways without my help. Long before I even got there. So that's my confession. And I didn't just get messed up as a missionary. I was a messed up pastor, too. I had my priorities in the wrong place. And I did not know this. I did not know this. Like I said, I needed Haiti more than Haiti needed me. And so I was a messed up pastor as well. And I had my priorities in the wrong place. In those early years as a young pastor, I had this twisted thinking that the the building of God's kingdom meant you had more people come to church. You had better stats to, to show at large church conventions. 
You had more programs to add to the church calendar to just show how busy I was. Because don't we know in Canada, in our culture, if you're busy, you're important. Oh, I got so much to do. Oh, I haven't had time to. I've been so busy. So if I was busy, it meant I was important, right? And a large portion of my confidence as a pastor was in part in the, the size of my church or the, the number of people who attended our Sunday services or even how many services we had on Sunday. <laughs> but Haitians, they keep it simple. I mean, what do they know or care about stats? I would suggest most of them don't even know what a stat is. I mean, isn't it about souls? Isn't it more about being faithful to the purposes and passions of our Heavenly Father than to church programs? Haitians have taught me the lesson to simply love God with all of your heart, mind, body, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Then God builds His church. It's His church. And surprise of all surprise, it doesn't actually even have to include a building. Haitians just keep it simple. And God blesses it. So this one time, my husband and I, one of the things we used to do before um, we're doing what we're now doing with the children, we were building buildings throughout Haiti for uh, I think around five years or so before we switched um, and went in this totally different direction. And so we were throughout the whole country of Haiti. Haiti is half the size of Nova Scotia, 10.7 million people. It's people everywhere. And we would travel throughout all the country. And traveling is not like coming on the 104, let me tell you. There is one road that I remember that's paved and it was built by the Americans. And it's the number one. And unfortunately, it's where all the resorts are. And that's where there's major, major crime. And I've not been able to go there for years because of that. And so most of the roads are either non-existent um, or they're just in extremely poor condition. Uh, we've been known to travel across the river 21 times to get to some of the villages to do work there. And we would build churches, we would build uh, clinics, uh, pastors' housing, um, schools. And so this one time, the, 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 the people were coming to faith in such volumes in Haiti, we couldn't keep up because what would happen is people would come to faith and then in Christ, and then we would come along and we would help put up a building for them to keep them safe from the heat and what have you and, and torrential rains. But we just couldn't keep up with it. And so we started to build what we would call a chapel. Well, not like a chapel. It was like a, um, a carport um, just to get, at least have something over their head. So this one day we were traveling and we came across a group that had absolutely nothing. And they had showed the Jesus film. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that film, but they had showed the, the story of Jesus based on the book of Luke, I believe. And people had come to faith. At that time, there was about 20. But they had no covering over them. And so I think I have a picture. Yeah. And so we went and we put up a carport, like a patio church is what we would call it. So that you can see the pulpit there and the little benches and they would have the 20 of them would be able to have some services. What about a month later, uh, we were traveling through that same area to go to a different project. And we decided on the way back that we would stop and check in on the pastor and how the church was going. This was about, you know, whatever, four to six weeks later. That church had gone to 100 in that time frame, and went on to grow, again, very, very quickly, days, weeks, to 172. Didn't even have a building. Didn't even have a building. And they're just, 
they're growing. And that's just a, a small example. But as a pastor, I used to struggle and struggle just to keep people in the church happy enough to stay in the church. But Haitians, they have so many people coming into their church that they are outgrowing their buildings even if they have one. I have another church story. Oh, God, help me not to go on too many stories or we won't get done today. We have another story, story Pastor Lucano. Um, he was uh, in a neighborhood that didn't have a church there. And so he had a neighbor offer his mango tree. And that was the church. The people would come, they would find Christ, and they would meet under the mango tree in this backyard. Now, their backyards are extremely small. There's no land, because you can imagine 10.7 million and half the size of Nova Scotia. There's no land, particularly in Port-au-Prince. And so you have this little, neighbor, this little backyard with a mango tree, and that's where the church grew. It's, it, then they outgrew that yard. And we end up putting similar something similar there. And then they outgrew that, and they end up going all across the street. And that was all within a year or less. And I made it so complicated. And had my priorities all messed up. But here are these millions of Haitians that have taught me so many lessons. And, and, and God is so moving in their midst that they cannot keep up with what he's doing. And millions of Haitians do not have any education. They don't even have houses in which to put their families in. They don't have food or clean water to sustain themselves. And 85% of the pastors that we personally worked with, which were hundreds, by the way, 85% of those pastors live in extreme poverty. Extreme poverty. But they seem to know how to be faithful in building the kingdom of God by simply keeping it simple. Love him, love others, and love themselves last. And it's not to say that things are easy for Haitians, but somehow they have managed to learn to steward their suffering wisely. Confession and lesson of a faulty missionary number four. Me, on the other hand, in comparison to my Haitian friends, pretty spoiled. See, if I'm not careful, I can succumb to this temptation to worship the idol of, of comfort and, and ease. And, and I might get irritated if I have to suffer power outages or a slow internet. Or if I don't have a hot shower, because I, 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 I don't do cold showers. I like hot baths, to be honest with you. On one hand, I might be tempted to think I'm really suffering if my food is not hot because I like my food hot, not cold. But I want my bath to be hot, not cold. I've got this all, all figured out, and, and, and I like my food hot and, and not cold. Uh, I don't do, if I, listen, if I don't have any food, if I miss even one meal, you know, you might think I'm really suffering. Because I missed out on a meal. And don't even get me started on needing to have a clean, white, shiny throne to sit on. Which is a rare thing in Haiti, by the way. I wish I had time to tell you stories, but I won't. You'll have to come back tonight because I'm actually hoping to do a Q&A, if that's okay. So you come back and you can ask me, tell me about the potty stories and I'll try to 
gracefully tell you some of my stories. But I am a potty princess, and I'm unredeemable. So don't even bother praying for me, because it's not going to happen. It's a done deal. I'm a potty princess. Okay? So there's a lot of things. This is one of the reasons why I didn't want to go to Haiti. Because I didn't want to suffer. I like things safe, comfortable, even cozy. And certainly in my past, my testimony to you would have been that I would run away when I would perceive suffering. I just fight it. I, I, I would curse it. I would rebuke Satan for sending it my way. But God knew what he was doing when he sent this pastor and missionary to Haiti. And he wanted to to show me through some of my Haitian brothers and sisters how to steward suffering and to do it with joy and peace and contentment. Now, I've grown a lot. You can't even, it is impossible to calculate how much I've grown since moving to Haiti as a missionary, but I still don't have this all down pat yet. I can still sometimes start acting like a spoiled princess, but I have to stop at those times and remember Pastor Seville and his impact on me. We had a Canadian team come and, and visit us. This is while we were still building the buildings. And uh, we had gone to a place called Jacques Mel. If you come and visit me in Haiti, I want to take you to Jacques Mel because it is one of the prettiest places on the planet and certainly in Haiti. Gorgeous. All along the coast, the emerald green water, white sand, you know, the coconut trees. Everywhere. It's just, it's beautiful. And so we went down to Jacques Mel. We took the Canadian team. It's mostly from Atlantic Canada, if I remember correctly. And um, we were building and finishing up a school there, which would also serve as a, a church and a community center. And um, this pastor, a Haitian pastor, was living on the church slash school grounds and kind of being like a caretaker over it. And so we, we had a chance to meet him. I was new to the country, so I really didn't know a whole lot of um, Creole at that point in time. So we had a translator help out. And at one day, he said to me, he said, uh, Pastor Tanya, would you, I'd like you to come to my house and, and meet my family. And I said, sure, okay. So I grabbed about five or six of the Canadians and the translator, Haitian translator, and uh, went over to Pastor's house. And I... I I'm still to this day stunned as I'm looking at this building. I'm recognizing something is different about this house than, than some of the others I've been seeing in Haiti. And so the story came out that uh, at that point in time, I think it was uh, three years prior, they had had the earthquake. And this pastor was pastoring a church up more into the mountain area of Jacques Mel. And when the earthquake hit, he lost Everything. Everything was destroyed he had nothing and he had children and a wife and a mother-in-law that he was and a grandchild that he was responsible for and so what is he going to do so he went to the church leader the district uh, superintendent Haitian leader there who oversaw hundreds of different churches in that area and said I I don't have anything for my family we have lost everything in the earthquake is there anything you do is there any like land we could just like maybe try to put a, a, a hut or something on? Like, is there anything that you have for us to do? And the pastor thought and eventually went back to Pastor Seville and said, I am so sorry, Pastor, but I don't have any available land anywhere in this area. But what I do have available is I have a pig pen. And if you want, 
you can move the pigs out and you can move your family in. And this is, this is where Pastor Seville was so excited. Now I have since learned more about the Haitian culture, it, it, I, more than I knew at that time. It is a big deal to be invited to their home as a foreigner. It's a big deal. And so he was very honored to invite me to his home and show me what was a pig pen. You can see it right there. You could fit one bed in it. The pigs were moved out, but you could fit one bed in it. In the pictures, Pastor Seville, uh, his wife, his mother-in-law, his son, and his granddaughter. And so here we are in this mud, dirt. Myself and these other Haitians are translator and Pastor Seville. And I'm telling you, I don't know if I've ever stood on more holy ground as I did that day. And I said to Pastor Seville, I said, Pastor, we would like to pray for you. How would you have us pray for you? Now, here's what I'm thinking. He's going to ask me to pray at least. Get my family out of this pig pen. I'm thinking, that's pretty reasonable. That's what I would be doing. Please ask God to give me a new home because I'm living with, and there was a, there's a uh, daughter missing from that. So there's one, two, three, four, five, six of them were living in that, that just enough to put a bed in, 100 square feet maybe. He didn't. The little girl in his arms had this horrible cough, and there's TB in Haiti. So I thought, he's going to ask for prayer over his granddaughter that God would heal her. He didn't ask that either. This is what he said with a smile on his face. Notice what he's got on his face in front of his pig pen? Smile. And this is what he said with a smile. He said, Pastor Tanya, please pray for my church. Please pray that we will be a witness in our community of the goodness and grace and love and mercy of Jesus Christ and that we'll be able to reach them for the kingdom of God. I have never recovered from that. So it's not about programs? I mean, you mean it's not about being busy? It's not about keeping people happy in the church? What do you mean? This man's in a pig pen with a sick grandchild. And with joy? He's asking that we'll pray that he'll reach people for Christ? Messed me up. Confessions. <laughs> See, these Haitians, um, they don't whine, they don't complain. They just seek to experience and express the joy of the Lord even when the worst of life is thrown at them. I have another story. Are you wanting to listen? How late am I? Am I good? Are you still awake out there? Yeah? Okay. I want to tell you another story. This is another one that really messed me up. Madame Inomene is one of the very few Haitians that I was able to get close enough to um, who has the worst of life thrown at her. I think we have a picture yet. I think you can tell which one she is. <laughs> um, we had, um, again, some visiting um, pastors come into our ministry. That is just outside of the guest house that we were running. And they came one day. It was the anniversary of the earthquake. I believe that particular anniversary was a hit of Sunday. And so we had gone to church in the morning, and then after church we brought um, 
some of our guests back to our home to have a meal with us. And we're just saying, I did not know this woman. I did not know her story. I didn't know anything about her. But it just started coming out. And she only spoke uh, French. Um, and the other gentleman beside her was a government worker, and he was, he was translating for us. Because, again, this was relatively early on in our time in ministry there. And she's just... Again, you see her in her face. She's this beautiful smile. She was a beautiful lady. Very gracious. Very, very gentle. Very humble. Very meek. I mean, it was, she just was clothed in this. But I didn't know her story. So she began to tell her story. She was in Haiti when the earthquake happened. And I believe her um, husband uh, and two of her boys were in the earthquake. But I believe she may have had another child, a daughter, that might have been in the U.S. at the time. And when the earthquake went down, her husband was killed instantly. One of her two boys, the oldest of the two, died instantly. She managed to get out. But the youngest of the boys was 16 years old. That was her baby. He was in the earthquake and was trapped, and he couldn't get out. And she couldn't get him out. And so she knows he's in there. He's, he's calling out to her, and she can't do anything. He starts to say, Mama, don't worry. Jesus is here. Don't worry. Mama, don't be afraid. Jesus is here. And then he died. So her family, gone. 35 seconds. So afterwards, she went into, as you may be able to imagine, I'm not able to, to be honest with you. I can't fully imagine that. But she went into this place that was very dark, very painful. And she used to crawl up in a fetal position on her bed, and she would rock herself and just wail. Say, I just want to see my baby again. I just want to see my baby again. God, where's my baby? And this would go on. This went on day after day after day after day. That's all that she could do. This one day she was in that position in her bed. And she felt this touch on her shoulder as she was curled in this position. Again, just wailing in this deep grief. And she turned to look. And it was her husband. And she says, I don't know. It's kind of like Paul. I don't know. Was in the body or out of the body? But who knows? God knows. <laughs> but this is her story. And she looked at him. And he called her by her nickname that he had for her. And he said, why are you crying? Do you remember Jesus at the tomb? Why are you crying? And he said, why are you crying? And she said, I just need to see my baby again. I just need to know he's okay. And so she said, he stepped to the side of her view, and she looked, and kind of like you are earlier and I am now, you know, trying to focus your eyes, trying to see behind what she was seeing behind him. And she said behind him was this beautiful green grass field. And at the far end of the field was a group of gathering of what she figured was young people. But they had their back, and they were interacting, and they were laughing, and they were happy, but she couldn't quite make out what, what, who was who. And she started to, to look a little bit more and she recognized the the back of one of them thinking I can only see the back but 
And as she's trying to discern how she knows the shape of that particular person in that back, the person went like this. Like they say, they just kind of looked over their shoulder and then realized that somebody they knew was behind them. And then a big grin came over their face. And it was her son. And he just smiled at her. And then everything changed in that moment. God's grace flooded her, peace flooded her. I am sitting around this table listening to this woman tell her story. My husband Darren was with me. Our son Corey was with me. The other Haitian people you see in the picture were there. And tears, and actually there was an American pastor with us as well. Tears running down our faces. Complete silence. We had no, it was so holy that this beautiful woman who had lost everything, who knew deep, deep grief with peace and joy, and again, you look at her face, you can see it. Because Jesus was there with her. Lessons learned from a faulty missionary. Such an immense measure of the likeness of Christ seen in and through the heart of this beautiful Haitian woman and how she handled her suffering and, and held on to to hope, when for me far too often it's, you know, it's even in my own soul, I can sometimes twist things without even realizing it, and it becomes about me, myself, and I. But overall, Haitians have this sense of responsibility to and for their community that in my personal experience is solely lacking sometimes, and much as myself and my culture and, and my country. And the Haitian people have taught me how important it is to see the needs of others is being more important than my own. There's some pictures I want to have come up now, if you don't mind going to, I think, which should be the next slide. Oh, this is my mama. This is Jesus with skin on. I'm not exaggerating. This woman is exceptional. And this is Colson, who was our um, foreman who worked for us. And this is the kitchen of our guest house that we had at the time. And this is lessons that they taught me, and I'm going to be very brief on some of these these stories because there's just some other things I want to cover. But um, so what we would, we would do after our teams had their last, we had teams that come in for seven days. And after we finished our teams, the last night we would throw this big Haitian meal um, with all these different foods and, that were Haitian, and um, we would serve them as a means of saying thank you for coming and helping us. And our mama would cook all of this. She would spend days getting ready for this meal. We had one stove, and somehow she managed to pull this all off. We were actually able to feed up to 60, 70 people in this one little kitchen. And um, and so here she is. She's She would go through each of the dishes, and she would tell the people you know, what the dishes were. She had some limited English so she could connect with them. She's 80-some years old, never been married. That's a whole other testimony. Uh, perhaps I'll have opportunity to share tonight if that's questions asked and so here's the thing that we would notice we knew that our we had staff work with us 40 staff working for us and we would notice that we knew they weren't always eating and we knew the conditions that they were living in with their families and these are one of the, the blessed ones because they had a job and they worked for us so they had some income coming in and we watched after a while we picked up on the pattern here's what was happening the teams would go out for two and three servings because the food was amazing they would go up and fill their plates two and three times and darren and i knew that the haitians were eating leftovers from them so whatever the teams left behind if they left anything behind the staff would get to eat even though they had spent days juices were all done by hand no machines. They, all, everything was done by hand, and they would not eat. 
and we would sit and watch the teams eat all the food. And so after we saw this for a while, I began to graciously kind of try to deal with that situation, or I would kind of hide some food aside to feed the staff afterwards because that could be their only meal. And you know, it never did change. It never did change. Because in our culture, we don't typically have to think about not having food. We just go to the fridge and get more. We cook more. We go to the store and get more. We go to the restaurant and buy more. That's not the way it is in Haiti. You can go days and days and forever practically without food. And so, but they never complained. The joy they had in seeing our guests being blessed by this food was enough for them. They've been known to do things like Colson. He had a truck that was always breaking down. Everything breaks down in Haiti because they only fix it to a degree that you have to come back again. Right? Because if they fix it totally, then you don't come back. They don't get more money. They don't get a job. So they fix it just enough to put a Band-Aid on it so that you'll keep coming back to them to get more and more stuff fixed. And so he had this truck that was constantly breaking down. Well, the Christmas came around, and we gave each of our staff Christmas bonus. And we knew the amount that we were giving him was just the amount that he needed to have that truck fixed for him and his wife and his two children. Well, Christmas break ends. He comes back, and he's sitting in the office one day with my husband, Darren, and Darren says, uh, so he was all excited, thinking he'd finally get this truck fixed. He said, how'd you make up with the truck over your holidays? Were you able to get it fixed? He's like, uh, uh, kind of hums and haw. And Darren's like, what do you mean? You didn't get it fixed? Well, he said, there was a need at the church. It was $500 bonus we gave him. And he said, which is a lot of money <laughs> for a Haitian. And he said, uh, there was a need in the church. So I gave it. I mean, this is the, this is the Haitian people. This is, this is the Haitian people. It's, 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 it's about others, sacrificially. Story after story, I could tell you about that. But just in closing, I mean, now you know the truth. Missionaries are not all heroes. We're not the super elite. We don't have it all together. However, here's the extraordinary thing. God didn't send me to Haiti as a missionary because I'm so perfect and powerful. He didn't send me to Haiti because of me. I'm less than ordinary. I'm foolish and, frankly, maybe even a lot messed up. But God, God surprisingly still wants me. As weak as I am, he actually chose me. Now, you might not choose me, and I might not choose me, but God chose me. There's another missionary I've gotten to know over the years, and I think I think he understands where I'm coming from on this because he wrote this. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. See, Paul's conviction and my personal conviction is the Lord is willing to choose the weak and foolish things. He is willing to choose the weak and foolish. He's willing to use anyone who will allow him to help them be willing to say yes to him because here's the thing when God called all those years ago for me to go to a place that I considered hell on earth I asked for the grace to say yes because I was more afraid of my disobedience and the consequences of my disobedience this loss of intimacy with my father I was more afraid of that than anything that Haiti could throw at me and so I said yes by his grace I said yes, and I'm so glad 
I'm so glad that I did. God grants his grace to rewards those who will say, I'm willing to have my blind eyes opened to see what you see, especially when it comes to my own spiritual poverty and my pride and my mixed up priorities. His grace is there. He's placed this grace before us and he's given it to those of us who allow us, allow him to teach us how do we steward suffering. How do, we, how do we walk in a deeper depth of commitment to him and a higher level of faith in him? Not in spite of the suffering, but because of the suffering. How do, we, how do we do that? His grace is there to help us. His grace is granted towards those who fail to fully understand his dunamis, dynamite power. The very same power that can transform a hell on earth to a taste of heaven. Because that's what he's done for me. Took it from hell on earth to heaven on earth for me. The truth is my missionary call has never been about me. The Lord never allowed me to serve him because of my spiritual greatness and perfect religious performance. It was, it is, it always will be God's grace using the weak and the foolish things of the world. Paul again recognized this very fact when he referred to his own cross-cultural ministry call to the Gentiles in Ephesians 3, 7 and 8. And it's going to come up on the screen now. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace. He's a gift. It's God's grace. Given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless grace, the boundless riches of of Christ. See, it's not about human credentials that's called a missionary service, or any service for that matter. Paul was a zealous Pharisee. He was a committed Jew from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, faultless under the law, but he considered it all rubbish. That's trash. He considered it all rubbish. He understood that his call to service was a gift of God's grace working in and through his life, nothing more, nothing less. And that same grace given to the Apostle Paul and granted to me is also available to you today. The power that equipped Paul to be able to faithfully and fruitfully share the gospel wherever the Lord sent him, even to the despised Gentiles, is a portion to us as well. Ephesians 4, 7, he wrote this, But to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. The Lord measures out his grace and power to make able those who will simply make themselves available to be used by him in the preaching of the boundless riches of Christ's grace. I have a question for you this morning. Will you make yourself available today? Will you make yourself available? Where is God calling you? I can promise you, and I, anybody that knows me well knows that I am a straight shooter, and I don't make promises unless I know I can keep them. And I promise you that Christ is calling you. I promise you. He is calling you. Now, he may be calling you to a place where people you don't want to go. Perhaps you are finding yourself more fearful than faithful, weak rather than worthy. Are you looking through the the wrong lens and seeing all the impossibilities rather, rather than the God who said nothing is impossible with him? Whose ability are you looking at? Are you looking at your ability or are you looking at his ability? Are you willing to grab hold of his grace and allow him to lead you into the purposes that he has 
for you? Are you weak and wondering, how can you do this? But are you willing to come out of your comfort zone into God's chosen mission field for you? God has a mission field for you. As powerless as you may feel, will you commit yourself to go to a place where people are drowning in profound pain, even if that place is no farther than the other side of the fence? If so, I have a word for you from the Lord. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. There it is. That's why I'm here. I'm not just here to tell you how, how, how messed up I am. That's not my purpose for being here. That's not my purpose for risking coming out of my coronavirus <laughs> hubby hole and leaving my husband back home uh, sick. That's not why I came, because I thought it would be kind of fun just to drive here. You're wonderful people. You look great, by the way. But that's not why I'm here. I'm here to issue you an invitation into a life that is absolutely radical, but is filled with the power and the presence and the peace of Jesus Christ. You don't have to go to Haiti for that. Praise God. Praise God. That's the issue today. Today I invite you with a divine invitation. God is waiting and wanting his RSVP. And so in the closing moments today, will you reach out and receive that grace that he has? The Lord is here. And his presence is here, anxious to place within us his his power, a power that has a purpose to enable us to say yes to him, a power that equips us to go for him to a lost and dying world, both here and all around the world, including places like Haiti and even here in New Glasgow. Christian Fellowship, this is your moment. This is not about me. It's not about the clock. Do you know Haitians have three, three and a half hour services and they're just getting started and they're in their heat and they don't have a chair. They don't have an air conditioner. They don't have PowerPoints. They don't have a microphone. They don't have something to eat afterwards, and they may not have something to drink afterwards. They may not even have a house to go to. But they're hungry for the Lord. And if they have to stay two and three hours, four hours, so be it. Because he's the only one that satisfies them. Who satisfies and what satisfies you today? Christian Fellowship, this is your moment. This is the moment of the Master's manifested mercy. And I urge you with everything that is within me to grab hold of his extended hand of grace and leave this place. Stand, if you would, please, this morning. And I want us to take a look at this last PowerPoint because this is, this is what it comes down to, guys. This is, this is, this is, this is, we're going to be held accountable. You know, I loved that, that skit this morning. That was so amazing. I loved his accent. I wish it was just slightly bit more Haitian because it would have felt like a Haiti experience for me, but it was so beautiful. And his, and his message was so clear. There is a day when we will have to get an account. There is a day where we will have to decide what have we done with Jesus Christ as Savior, first and foremost. What have you done with Jesus Christ? Is he your savior today? If he's not, he certainly wants to be, and will you make him one? It's very simple. You just acknowledge that you're a sinner. You believe on him, and you confess your sins and choose him as savior and lord of your life and be born again and filled with his spirit. Perhaps today you know Christ, but are you serving him? Are you using the gifts and the talents that he's given to you? 
because one day I will stand before the Lord. That's why I was more afraid of saying no to him, Pastor Bruce, than I was saying yes to him, even though all that stuff was still there. And it has been profoundly painful. I know of five missionaries who have been killed there. This is no joke, okay? This is no joke. But I wouldn't change any of it. And I can't believe I can't get back yet because it's heaven on earth for me now. And I know that one day I'm going to give an account. So are you. So are you. What have you done with my son? And what have you done with the gifts and abilities and talents that I've given to you? What have you done with the call I've issued on your life? And every single one of us is called to Matthew 28, 19 to 20. It's not the great suggestion. It's the great commission. It's not a suggestion. It's an actual command. We are held accountable to our obedience to it. And we're not all called to be missionaries. When anybody says, oh, we're all called to be missionaries, no, we're not. We're all called to be evangelists, to share the gospel. Not all of us are called to go cross-culturally. Not all of us are called to go another land. Not all of us are called to a cross-cultural experience within our own country. If you are, praise God. It's an amazing lifestyle. But not all of us are called to that. But we are all called to Matthew 28, 19 to 20. And so my encouragement to you as I read these words is to allow that ministry of the Holy Spirit, that mercy that God wants to manifest, speak to you today. Because even if it's just the person across the fence, you are called to go. And we will be held accountable. And don't we want to hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant? Is that going to be worth it all? Who wants to just kind of slip into heaven when he's got such amazing rewards for us for simply saying, by your grace, I will say yes. I will say yes. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded you. As we would say in Haiti, let us pray. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we do come before you this morning, and we're grateful that you are a good, good Father, that you are a loving Lord that you are the comforter and you are the counselor. Thank you, Father, that you have good things for us, good things to plan for us, plans to give us hope and a future not to harm us. Thank you that you call us into partnership with you. You bring us into your presence to, to love you and be loved by you and then in turn to go and love others as ourselves. Thank you for your mercy, Lord. Thank you that you called to us to partner with you in the message of the gospel. The only place to find hope, the only place to find a future is that on our knees before Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. There is no other name under heaven by which we may be saved. There's just Jesus, none but Jesus. Thank you, Father, for the favor that you have given to me this morning to be able to be here with these, your precious people. Thank you for allowing me to give testimony of your grace in my own life in this area. Thank you that you called me out, out of my foolishness, away from my flesh, to a foreign field so that I would learn these lessons that would be so transforming for me and my family. I now pray that you would bless those lessons and cause them to be contagious in the lives of these people, that they would hear your heartbeat for them and for those you've called them to, that you would help them even in this corona crisis to be creative, and how they show out their commitment to you and their obedience to the Great Commission. Bless them. Bless them to make them a blessing. And bless the fruit of their labor as they go from this place today.
to share the good news of Jesus Christ because he's good all the time and all the time he is good. Or as my Haitian brothers and sisters say, bon dieu liban tout temps, tout temps bon dieu liban. God is good all the time and all the time God is good. Non nom Jésus nous prions matin. In the name of Jesus we pray this morning. Amen and amen.